Hello and welcome to Cybernia, a podcast exploring science in Ireland and beyond. I'm Lenny Antonelli and with me in studio today are Marie Boren, Sylvia Leatham and Arlene O'Neill. You can find us on the web at cybernia.ie, on Twitter under at cybernia and at facebook.com forward slash cybernia. You can also email us on podcast at cybernia.ie. Coming up on the show today, we talk to Arlene about nanoscience and why it might one day allow us to send an elevator into space. Marie speaks with Brian Wynne, Professor of Science at the University of Lancaster, about GM foods and the recent E. coli outbreak. And we find out why the sky is blue and sometimes red in our first ever Ask a Scientist slot. Now, Arlene, you're a nanoscientist. You're in the third year of your PhD at the, this is quite a mouthful here, I better get this right, the Centre for Research on Adaptive Nanostructures and Nano Devices um, at Trinity College okay. Dublin. And you're working on graphene, which is essentially a type of carbon that's just one atom thick, um, and it's essentially two-dimensional. So we'll get to um, graphene in a bit, but can you start by telling us exactly what nanoscience is? So nanoscience is the study of materials at the nanoscale. So to be more specific, it's one billionth of a size of a metre, so by 10 to the minus 9. So if we're talking about a strand of hair, that's about 60 microns. We're going down about 60,000 times smaller. So you can appreciate the advances in technology that have had to come before we can get into this nano world, this tiny, tiny world. And can you tell us, I mean, nanoscience is one term, another term people might be familiar with is nanotechnology. Can you tell us about the difference between the two? Absolutely. And they're slightly confused, I think, sometimes. So nanoscience really brings in physics, chemistry and biology. And it really kind of um, really looks at the properties changing at the nanoscale. And it's very much how it's studied. But nanotechnology is taking that information and doing stuff with it. So how can we make devices? How can we make robots, for example? So that's the difference, really, the the study versus the application of it. Okay. And can you tell us a bit about the history of nanoscience? How long have we had it? Where did it come from? Absolutely, again. So um, Richard Feynman, I suppose, is the godfather of uh, the area of nanotechnology. So it was in 1959 when he gave a talk about, um, it was entitled, There's Plenty of Room at the Bottom. And really, he posed this really abstract idea that we could print a whole encyclopedia on the tip of a pin. And this really got the the room very excited and people start really thinking he was crazy. But today that's very possible. And um, a lot of researchers start focusing on this area of small, small science. And really, once we got down there, a whole new branch of everything really came out in terms of um, new mechanical strengths, new electrical conductivities, optical properties, physical properties. Um, just to mention a few, there's there's a whole load more. So I think the first kind of nano carbon nano material was um, discovered in eighty five, nineteen eighty five, and that was by Richard Smalley in Rice University. And really, that's just sixty carbon atoms in the shape of a ball. So it was so called uh, the book Minister Fullerene, or else Soccerine, because it looks exactly like a football. Then from there, they went on in nineteen ninety one. Um, Ejimid first discovered the uh, carbon nanotube. So it was the multi-wall carbon nanotube where you've got cylinders of carbon uh, concentric around the inner tube. And then I think two years later, they they isolated it down to just one tube thick. So again, incredible properties really revolutionized the way we started to think about exploiting these materials for applications. Um, then the most recent member of the carbon nanotu- or the carbon um, nanomaterial family has been graphene, which was only discovered in 2004. So this is a two-dimensional form of carbon, which is, like you said in your intro, it was just one atom thick. So between the three, we have the carbon families, and they all demonstrate incredible properties. 
can you tell us this this nano world, which sounds um, incredibly tiny? How do we how do we get down there? How do we get to the nano world? So there's two approaches to get into the nano world. The first one is the top down approach, which is what I do, where we take a crystal or we take a bulk thing from our world, our macro scale world, and we really just try and exfoliate it down into its nano layer form, nano or mono layer form. The other approach is the bottom-up approach where they actually place atoms. So this is where they take the STM tip and they place the atoms exactly where they want them. What's the STM tip? So the scanning tun- tunneling microscope, which okay. was discovered in 1981 by Binnick and Rohr, and they, wo- they won the Nobel Prize in '85, really because it really kind of... We, n- we never thought we could actually pick atoms up and place them wherever we like. And this was a huge, huge advancement in the area of nanoscience. And um, I believe that there are some potential health worries about some of these carbon nanomaterials, kind of in the same way that there were that well that asbestos has proven to be dangerous. There's there's worries that if we were to, for example, inhale some of these carbon nanomaterials, they could cause um, health problems. Absolutely, I'm not involved in any toxicological research myself, but I'm very aware that we need to be extremely careful going forward. Things like um, I would certainly wear my protective equipment while using them, but for example, graphite, which is um, just the lead of a pencil, a graphite crystal. Really, I take this every every day and I exfoliate it into its monolayer form, graphene. So that's potentially harmless. But like you said, carbon nanotubes have a similar structure to asbestos, and perhaps they could we could breathe them in and get they get lodged in our lungs, and they're very difficult then to remove. But um, a lot of people, a lot of money has been spent on this area of research to make sure that we're not, as well as we're advancing all our uh, technologies, we're not actually killing ourselves in the process. So um, certainly there's probably, I'd say, I can't give exact figures, but um, there's a lot of people working in the area of um, trying to understand how dangerous these materials are. Okay, right. And can you give us... um some examples maybe of how nanomaterials are being used uh, at the moment. Is there any practical applications yet? Yeah, so there's plenty of areas, but um, I suppose it's really hit the consumer industry, the high-end consumer industry at the moment. Things like um, all the top golf players would have carbon nanotubes in their actual golf clubs because they make them much lighter but equally as strong. So for example, tennis rackets, um, the bikes that all the top athletes would use. So it's very much um, a consumer-driven um, commodity at the moment. But things like our, hel- our airplanes, for example, have nanotubes in the coatings on the plane to um, help discharge any charge buildup on the plane and also to actually make the plane very much stronger but keep it light. Okay, and less what about for the future? Any um, exciting potential uses for nano nanoscience that you can tell us about? So something that I was working on there before Christmas was the idea of was uh, flexible electronics where we take nanomaterials and we um, put them onto a plastic. So the idea that they conduct electricity but we can make them flexible. So for example, we could take our laptop which is made of the, the screen is made of, of, of uh, indium tin oxide. And that's really brittle. So if we drop our laptop, it breaks. But if we can make these nanofilms on the plastics, they can roll our laptops up, put them in our pocket and take them back out without any damage. And they'll wow. work perfectly. Yeah. So that's really the future of electronics, this idea of flexible electronics. Wow. And you, this, this is the one I'm quite excited about, um, the elevator into space. Tell us about this. Yeah, absolutely. So this might seem a bit crazy, but um, the idea that we could perhaps take a five hour trip into space, have a look around and then come back down. 
at a small hefty fee, I'm sure. But basically, it's the idea that we could have a cable cart um, hanging from a satellite in a geosynchronous synchronous orbit, which will reach down to the Earth's surface. So there will be some sort of substation around the equator. And we literally get on and up we go. But carbon nanotubes demonstrate potential um, potential material to actually make this viable things to actually that the because they're so strong exactly exactly so the elevator can actually go up on a, a very um thick rope of nanotubes so this probably wouldn't be possible or even thought of if not the area of nanotechnology hasn't come forward so it's very real and nasa are putting out serious funding and um, for anyone who can contribute to this area they're also investing a lot of r&d themselves and uh who knows um yeah, we could be all going up to space in the next 10 years, maybe. Wow, quite exciting. Thanks very much, Arlene. Thank you. Uh, Marie, last week you spoke with Brian Wynne. He's Professor of Science Studies at the University of Lancaster. Um, he was speaking at DCU's annual conference on science and society. Yeah, I talked to Brian about the still controversial topic of GM foods, as well as his take on how the science community handled the recent E. coli outbreak that left 29 dead and 3,000 others seriously ill. How, how is Europe with GM foods compared to America right now? How do we? You showed us a map and there was several um, refuseniks, as you call them, and then yeah. several countries that... Um, we're consenting, although you said Ireland yeah. since it's changed its position. <coughs> Overall, are we positive to GM foods and do we think a lot about growing it but exporting it only or growing it and then having to eat it too? Mm. Well, I mean, the conventional way of understanding it has been that European citizens are by and large anti GM and US citizens are by and large pro GM. You know, that's been the st- standard view. And I don't think that comparison is very accurate. Yes, on the face of it, that's how things are. And apropos that map I showed with all of the states in red uh, being the refuseniks and all the ones in green being the pro, I mean, as you know very well, like on that map, Britain is green, France is green, so pro, but there's a huge proportion of the population are anti-GM in those supposedly pro-GM countries. And there's a... I mean, there's further map, which um, I I should have actually put in that presentation, really, as well, which is just showing the number of regions, so sub-nationally, the number of regions which are actually explicitly, and often in terms of, like, votes in municipalities or in provincial governments... Including in Does this mean like farming <coughs> communities are more likely to be anti-GM than people living in them um, an urban area? I think, I think the farming community varies quite a lot, actually, d- depending upon what kind of farming community it is, whether it's typically, you know, this varies across Europe, as you know, typically small farm or big farm, uh, industrialised farming more uh, type of communities. So I think that farming itself is pretty variable but I think generally speaking uh, beneath the level of national parliaments or national governments even if a national government might be voting in Europe in favour of GM in practice its citizens might well be expressing all kinds of anti-GM sentiment including not just in attitude surveys or opinion surveys but in things like, as I say, municipal votes against or regional or provincial government votes against. I mean, um, 
It's the Scottish Assembly voted against, voted to be a GM-free region. The number of GM-free regions in in Europe is is approaching 200, is it? Or maybe it's over 200 now. A few years ago, it's about GM 180. GM-free sounds like a stamp, like toxin-free. It sounds like a positive stamp. Is that how the public really see it? Um, and oh, what, where yeah. should you see, where mm. should the public mm. go to? Mm. Um, as, as someone who doesn't know a lot about GM mm. foods, I think there's mm. a lot of people like me, we want to look around and, and ask somebody to give us the last word on it. Yeah. So yeah, in sure. Europe, as a European citizen, <coughs> where's my mm. last word? Is it safe or not? Is it frankenfood? Is it good? Yeah, I don't think you should look for the last word from anybody. Uh, I think what you need to do is to ask, what are the issues? And, you know, there are several different issues in connection with something big like GM food Um, and each of those issues is quite distinct even if they're linked you know the question of food safety if we eat it is separate from the question of say environmental risk or environmental damage which might accrue and that's different from the social and economic impacts which is different again from the whole issue about long term sustainability of that as a food production system and there are all kinds of issues there which are about, well, you know, most people's instincts, I think, are to say, well, in something big like food and agriculture, diversity's got to be a good principle to, as far as you can, to Absolutely. follow. And then the question is, so is GM actually compatible with diversity? Or does its economics or its structure, its existing industrial structure... Does that somehow force, um, you know, hegemony and monopoly mm. into the technological infrastructure and technological distribution in the domain? There, mm. there is a fear that, um, like technology companies, um, yep. basically we all buy maybe Microsoft or Apple. Isn't there mm. a fear that we'll all be buying a certain brand of potato or banana controlled mm. by one big company? Well, you know, as consumers we tend to like go and we're in in a hurry when we go shopping and we've you know so we're looking for apart from other things we're looking for let's get it done fast and then it often is go back and get the same as you got last week or last month whenever and so you can tend in that direction but if you've got genuine diversity of options in front of you you can also actually you know shop around a bit pick and choose and you could say well that's a luxury that most people in the world can't afford they're you know they're happy just to get any food at all in front of them and that's true but you know i think the point is that we're all going to have to take food more seriously all of us including those countries like my own britain which have been able to take food for granted and take lots of choice in food for granted as well i don't think we're going to be able to do that in the future and so we're going to have to actually start asking, well, what is what conditions are actually going to best help to sustain diversity and resilience and decent distribution globally of food in future? And how do you think the E. coli outbreak that happened in the past couple of weeks, how has that impacted on how we feel about food and distribution of food? Yeah. And also public engagement, which is your area of expertise. Yeah. Was it yeah. engaged with properly at all? Well, it's a good question. It didn't seem to me it was dealt with at all. Okay, uh, I mean, it, the, the presumption seemed to fall 
straight out that this was, you know, this was Spain producing dirty vegetables which came and, you know, polluted our nice clean environment and our nice clean diet in Germany. And that now has been completely overthrown. And I think the main recognition is basically science doesn't know enough. Uh, you know, we've got limits to our knowledge, our best, the best available knowledge of E. coli, where it comes from, how it might be developing itself as a bacterial infectious agent, um, how is it developing and how has it actually acted in this case to kill, what is it, somewhere between 20 and 30 people and, yeah, and maybe more. Um, you know, I just think it's, again, it's a, a partly a matter of like where we place our priorities in terms of research and development. And areas like microbiology and food are, are absolutely crucial for future development. And just recognising how little we know about these things is a really important part of this, I think. And that, that then, in terms of public engagement, um, you know, I think the conventional way of looking upon typical publics, that if we tell them that science doesn't control all the knowledge or all the predictive power science doesn't have the same predictive power or control power that we thought it had that this is going to panic people and they're going to start you know, running into hysterical uh, mass hysteria I think is nonsense I think we can actually do a far better job of admitting you know, lack of knowledge and ignorance and lack of control where it exists and people are not going to go on the streets and riot and panic in the way that we fear they will. And maybe they'll trust and, well, because, I think, it's, because it's being open and honest. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's absolutely right. But the other thing is, you know, a corollary of that is that everybody needs to be ready to take more responsibility, including food consumers. We can't just accept... We can't pretend or believe that what's on the label is the truth and it's the whole truth and, not, you know, nothing else needs to be said. And there might be things there, like as in the E. coli outbreak, where we didn't know some stuff we should have known. And that's, that's a problem, you know. Um, so whatever is found to be the cause of that outbreak, hopefully we can actually look at things like, you know, the sheer kind of scale of movement of foodstuffs around the world. I mean, is that a sustainable is it energy sustainable apart from anything else? You know, Absolutely not. And, exactly. And so how do we do it different in a way that means that people still get a comfortable diet without getting an extravagant diet, you know? And how do... So we can spin out something <coughs> positive from the E. coli outbreak well, I think that so. it's maybe starting yeah. conversations, even if yeah. they're not exactly on E. coli, it's starting yeah. conversations yeah. about where our food comes from and why we yeah. should... <clears throat> try and um, make it locally produced for environmental reasons yeah. and then source globally when needed, not when cheaper. Exactly, exactly. And and that consumers should be aware of what the you know, what the source of this food is. If it's like, you know, a green bean that's been produced in Ethiopia, as some of the green beans I see in my supermarket at home are and we know that's true for all kinds of things from all over the place now then is that actually a sustainable kind of food chain? Or is it not? You know, um, We need to take responsibility for asking those questions as consumers and as citizens. 
and not just say, oh, that's somebody else's responsibility, you know, and we could just buy whatever's in front of us. And food scientists have a responsibility then, of course, to label food mm. properly and have standards, mm. but do you think that there, there's a lot of correct labelling and that we were too lazy to read it? Yeah, uh, I'm diabetic, so I read a lot of labels. I have to, you know, what's the carbohydrate content of this? And so um, I kind of take an interest in that for personal reasons as well as for sociological reasons. Um, I, I think, I don't know, I mean, I, I'm fully sympathetic with anybody who says, you know, I want a simple short circuit kind of system. I need to get something fast, you know, in front of me that's reliable, got to be reliable, and I've got to be able to understand it quickly. And, you know, that means that inevitably some more specialist interests, like maybe my own and the diabetes thing, are not going to be satisfied in in some cases. Um, But, you know, I, I think it's interesting for me, and it's perverse, that food labelling seems to be actually influenced far more strongly by the big corporate interests which are interested in selling more food than it is Packaging in Packaging it in a more public interest. Way. This is low yeah, in carbs yeah, for those yeah. interested in dieting, which is a multi-billion yeah. industry. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So, you know, all of that uh, set of interests mm-hmm. looks like it's influencing food labelling far more than what should be influencing, which is public interest of different kinds, including health and, you know, uh, all the rest of it. And um, one final question. Mm. Um, last year you had been on the steering group and along with another scientist, I think mm. it was just one of you mm. had resigned because you felt they were pushing a oh, pro-GM yeah. agenda. Maybe you could yeah. tell me a little bit about that because I know you're not pro or anti-GM, <laughs> yeah. but yeah. you're pro-discussion, debate and openness, obviously. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah, um, my main issue there was... Uh, that I was trying... Well, I mean, when I was asked whether I would sit on that steering group, it was the Food Standards Agency and it was doing a GM public dialogue in in the UK. So when I was approached and asked whether I'd sit on that committee, I said, is this going to be a debate like GM or not? And I said, if that's the debate, I'm not interested, I'm not going to sit on your steering group. And they reassured me, the officials in the FSA reassured me that that wasn't how it was going to be. It was going to be, you know, broader and so on. So I thought, fair enough. You know, GM debate uh, in the context of global food security, let's do it. You know, it's a good idea and it's important, so let's go for it and try and make it as good as we can make it with the resources that are available. But I very soon realised that actually whatever was said, and I don't think the officials were deluding or deceiving anybody, they were perfectly honest competent officials doing their best but I very soon realised that actually all of the presumptions were narrowing it down but they were doing it in a way that was basically about the science thing again you know this is a science GM is a scientific issue and this is a scientific agency the food standards agency is a scientific agency so we only do science and so we want to tell people what the science is want to listen to their views and educate them was about the sum total of it and I said but there are a load of issues about GM which go beyond just the scientific questions about risk and health and you know all that kind of thing and I said those are important and those have got to be part of the debate and the dialogue 
like who controls the global food chain, who controls the knowledge, the seeds, the land, etc. And, and you know who's actually gaining control of the global food chain and it was like they just didn't recognise that that was a legitimate issue that was anything to do with GM and I kept on trying to explain it and explain it and explain it and it just kept on being just like not understood, dismissed, I don't know because there's just a kind of tramline mentality which is science, 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 science and then you know I had the chair of the Food Standards Agency Jeff Rooker an ex-Labour MP basically proudly saying well uh, this is a scientific issue and the public is anti-science so well, what is the point of having a dialogue with a public that you're you know then like just He's already made up his mind oh, exactly <laughs> exactly so the whole point is it's an open issue let's define what public concerns are about GM and then you know go from there thank you very much Brian for your time now we're introducing a new slot on the show. Uh, it's called Ask a Scientist, um, in which we ask um, a scientist a question that's been piquing our listeners' interest. Um, and as we've got Arlene in the studio, and she's a physicist, we thought we'd put our first question to her. Um, Arlene, why is the sky blue? Okay, so it's not always blue, first thing, I suppose. Sometimes it's uh, various shades of violet right down to, and then it goes all the way down to red. So how... What actually is happening is that the light from the sun, which is a form of uh, radiation, so it has um, various different wavelengths. And when that hits the atmosphere, which is composed up of dust, dust particles and water particles, etc., when it actually um, comes through and hits the atmosphere, the wavelength changes depending on what it's actually hit. So the atmosphere actually um, causes scattering of the light and we see the sky as being blue. That's because everything else is actually getting through and the atmosphere is absorbing this bluish colour. So, um, for example, then in the the long evenings during the summer when the sky goes red, what's happening then is that the the wavelength that's being absorbed is changing from blue, which is a short wavelength, to red, which is a long wavelength. So that gives us the two different colours of the sky. Okay, and... um while you're here, why don't you tell us why the grass is green as well? Well, Lenny, actually, grass is not green. Grass is actually every other colour but green. It's, I think as far as I know, it's the chlorophyll in the, green, in the grass that actually absorbs everything. And what happens is it doesn't like the green, it spits the green back out. And that's what we see with the eye. So it's the reflected um, colour that actually, or it's the f- reflected wavelength of light that we see. And that, that gives it its colour. So it's... Uh, it's not actually what you're seeing. It's uh, everything else but that colour. Wow, OK. Well, thanks very much for that. Um, if any of you listeners out there would like to send us in a question that you'd like a scientist to answer, just drop us an email. Our email address is podcast at cybernia.ie. Now, just before we finish up, um, we've got time to hear about a few events that are coming up. Sylvia? As you may know, next year Dublin is the European City of Science and will host the Euroscience Open Forum Conference in July 2012. The calls for submissions for the conference and also for scientific events around Dublin are now open. Both calls will close on June 30th. Visit dublinscience2012.ie for more information. 
On Friday, July 1st, the Blackrock Castle Observatory will be celebrating 30 years of the Space Shuttle as part of their First Friday series. There will be hands-on activities from 6 to 8pm, followed by a talk about the shuttle. Visit bco.ie for more details. And finally, Astronomy Ireland is holding a public lecture on July the 11th at Trinity College Dublin. Dr. Mark Long, head of the School of Physics at NUI Galway, will be talking about gamma rays from space in his lecture on the Extraordinary Universe. Thanks to our fellow Cybernian Trina O'Connell for compiling these events. And if you have a science-related event that you'd like to publicise, send us the details at podcast at cybernia.ie. That's all for this week's show. Thanks to uh, everyone here in studio. Uh, thank you to our listeners. Um, thanks to Near FM and thanks to our producer, Gavin Byrne. Um, if you want to get in touch, remember, you can email us at podcast at cybernia.ie. You can find us on Twitter at, at cybernia, on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash cybernia, or you can check out our website, cybernia.ie. Thanks very much for listening. Mm-hmm.